1 John chapter 2. Feels like forever since we've been in 1 John. But to give context where we're at here in 1 John chapter 2, remember the whole theme of 1 John is going deeper with Jesus. John desires us to have a deeper fellowship, a deeper, closer relationship with Jesus. And, and that's how John started his letter. He started his letter with this key idea of fellowship. He says, he which was from the beginning, the one who was involved in the beginning of creation, the one who stepped into creation, into time and space, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we watched him. And that close relationship we have with him, we want you to have it too. And then John established how we have a relationship, how we fellowship with a perfect, holy, sin-purging God. And it's through confession, through that honest relationship with the Lord, living in his light. But while he starts there with that fellowship aspect, the bulk of John's letter revolves another key to going deeper with the Lord. Chapters two through five are zero, laser focused in on knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm saved, having assurance of your salvation. And so John is going to explain that there are three tests. In chapter two through five, there are three tests to determine if I'm a genuine believer. Now, he doesn't say there's three tests for you to determine who's a genuine believer, but it's three tests for me to determine if I'm born again, if I'm a genuine believer in the Lord. First, there's a moral test, then there's a love test, and then thirdly, there's a truth test. And so over the next four chapters, we're going to be looking at all three of those, um, those tests and how to apply them to our lives. Now, when John gets to chapter two, he is about to introduce this first test the moral test. But John does not want to be misunderstood. So he spends the first two verses clearing up two possible misconceptions. First off, he says, I write these things to you that you sin not. In other words, he doesn't want us to get the idea that sin is not a big deal. Since we're saved by grace and the blood of Christ is continually cleansing us as long as we're confessing our sin, he doesn't want us to get the impression that sin isn't a big deal. But the second thing he doesn't want us to misunderstand is that because he's going to talk about obedience, he's teaching legalism. He's not teaching that. So, having established that sin is a big deal, but that he's not teaching legalism, John in verse 3 now gives the first test in verses 3 through 6. He says, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So John just comes out and says, this is how we know, we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. John is going to use two different words for knowing in all throughout his letter. One letter refers to head knowledge, comprehension, intellectual comprehension. It means understanding something fully. The other word, this word here that's used twice, refers to learned knowledge or experiential knowledge or relational knowledge. Like someone could tell me that you're smart, but that's different than me spending time with you and going, man, 
He's smart. Those are the difference between these two words. This experiential knowledge is something that you perceive or understand by becoming acquainted or familiar with someone or something uh, through day-to-day interaction with them or it. And so when John says here, hereby, or by this means, we do know that we know Him, he's saying this is how we come to understand that we are right with the Lord. This is how we experientially learn that something has taken place in our life. In fact, the first no is in the present tense, so that refers to this coming to knowledge. The second no is in the perfect tense, which refers to a completed action. It's all done. There is a difference between the concept of being born again and the concept of having assurance of our salvation. Being born again is something that happens immediately upon your confession of faith in Christ. The moment you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you have been taken out of darkness and you've been put into light. You have been placed in Christ with all the benefits that come with being a son or daughter of God. Everything we learned in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is yours the moment you get saved, the moment you're born again. But having assurance of your salvation is not something that happens in a moment. Unlike our, like we're not, we're not becoming born again. It's like, you know, well, what, you know, are you born again? Well, I'm, I'm on my way. No, there's either you are or you aren't. You either are or you aren't. John will say in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, he that has the Son has life. He that has the Son of God does not have life. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. There's no middle ground. There's no process. You're either born again or you're lost, dead in your sins. But having assurance of our salvation doesn't work like that. It's not something that happens in a moment. Assurance is something we grow in over time. And what helps us to grow in our assurance? Well, it's, John says, our obedience. This is how we come to know that we, it's a done deal, that we already know Him. If we keep His commandments. The word here, phrase here, if we keep, it means if we should keep on obeying, if we should continue in obedience. The idea is it's describing someone who's life is characterized by obedience or whose life is one that's growing in obedience. And John says it's obedience to his commandments. Now, when John uses this word for commandments, he is not talking about the laws that governed Israeli civil and ceremonial life, okay? Like, I, it's, it's, I don't know if it's comfortable. I, I don't know enough about uh, textiles, or I don't even know if that's the right word. I don't know enough about material that you'd make clothes with. I don't, know, I don't know enough about those things to know, like, what's better to make it all have one material or blend materials. But if you were living under Jewish ceremonial and civil law, you were not allowed to make garments that came from two different types of material. You weren't allowed to crossbreed animals of different species. If you own a mule today, you're not going to hell. Anybody own a mule? All right. Some of you look at me like, How, that doesn't resonate at all with me. I don't know why. But back then, you weren't supposed to have that as, a, as an Israeli. So John's not talking about those things. John used a different word in his writings for those commands, different word for commandments. This word that he uses, he uses it to refer to the moral laws of God that never change. 
It's never okay. It's never been okay to steal. It's never been okay to lie. It's never been okay to have an idol. It's never been okay to take the Lord's name in vain. It's never been okay to, to not honor your father and mother. It's never been okay to covet. This refers to the moral laws of God that never change, the precepts that Jesus taught, the charges that have been handed down by the apostles in the New Testament. He says, we're going to grow in our assurance as we are continuing to obey those things. Now, the word here, if, there are four different ways to say an if-then statement in the New Testament language. Our English language is specific in some ways, but in other ways it is woefully not. For example, I use the same exact English word to say I love ice cream or I love birds, although I probably would just say I like birds. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love Jesus. I use that word love for all those things, and yet I think everyone here understands that that is a different level for all those things. So our language can be very generic in that sense. We only have one way to say if this, then this. But in the New Testament language, they had four ways to say an if-then statement. There was an if-then statement of when I say it, I know, it will, I know it's true, the clause of reality. Then there was a clause where I say, well, if this would happen, then this would happen, but I know that would never happen because that's not real, like that's not true. The second clause of unreality. And then you had the third one of greater probability and then the fourth one of lesser probability. What's interesting here is that John uses the third one of greater probability. In other words, what John is saying is that the normal course of events for someone who is born again is a life characterized by obeying God, by continuing to obey. And that makes sense because we're not the same after we get saved, amen? We've been born again. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and He is making us more like Jesus each day. So an expected characteristic of a Christian is an obedient life. Does that always happen? No. That's why John doesn't say, that hereby do we know that we know Him, if we first clause reality, always keep his commandments, because that doesn't happen. If that's what John was saying, he would have used the first class, conditional clause of reality, which then would have translated to, this is how we do know that we know him, since we always keep his commands. True believers, someone who's genuinely born again, can be stubborn, rebellious, selfish, and carnal at times. But when I'm acting that way, I am deviating from the normal path a Christian takes. The goal should be what John said in verse 1, my little children, these things write I unto you that you do not sin. That should always be my goal, to not sin. So that means the normal growth arc for a Christian is to be sinning less, to be growing in our obedience more and more as we get to know the Lord better. And if we're growing in disobedience, it does assure our hearts that we do indeed know the Lord. Yes, I still fail, but my heart is to obey and I'm growing in that. My desire is to not sin. My desire is to please the Lord and I'm growing in that. And so that's how I know that I'm His. Kenneth Wiest translates it this way, which it's a mouthful, but I I think it's important. He says, if we are keeping His commandments... We know that we have in time past come to know Him. We're born again with the present result 
that that state of knowing him is true in us. The idea is that I can know that something true happened when my present state looks a certain way. Now, that means that since disobedience is a deviation from the normal path of a Christian, disobedience affects my growth in knowing Jesus, which is going to therefore affect my insurance. If you're living in disobedience, you're not going to feel assured. You're going to struggle with that. That doesn't mean you're not really saved. To determine that, we need to rather not examine, do we have our ups and downs or how I feel? What we need to examine is, well, what is my attitude toward having my disobedience pointed out to me? And that's what verse 4 deals with. Verse 4, he says, he that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This phrase, he that says, it, it, it means the one who keeps on saying, the one who keeps on professing or protesting. The concept that John is describing here is there's an individual who, when confronted with their sin, who maybe isn't experiencing assurance of salvation, is constantly saying, but I do know him. I have been born again. I am different. And yet their life says otherwise. This person is claiming, I absolutely know him. And they're repeatedly claiming that, while at the same time, they are not keeping his commandments. The word says and the word keeps, they're both participles. A participle is a, is a word that functions like a noun, but has some verbal type qualities, action-like qualities. Actions occur in time. They don't occur independent of time. The fact that these participles are both in the present tense means that they are both acting in time at the same time. So at the same time, they are constantly professing, constantly protesting, but I do know, Kim, they're constantly disobeying. And John is saying, that is a contradiction. That is a contradiction. Now, what John isn't saying is if you claim to be a Christian, but you ever disobey him, you're a liar. That's not what he's saying. John is describing a person who is currently living a life that is characterized by disobeying God, but when questioned about that deviating behavior, keeps on claiming, but I am different. I do, without a shadow of a doubt, know Jesus. I've been born again. To them, John says, you're lying to yourself and to others. Now, that's a heavy statement. But John is making that heavy statement because the scriptures are full, full of exhortations or like uh, pithy wisdom pieces that talk about how wise people, people who love the Lord, people who want to please the Lord, how they're open to correction. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17, Proverbs 10, 17, I'm just going to give you a few examples of this. Proverbs has a lot of statements, you know, that someone who loves God, someone who is wise, someone, they love correction and they cultivate a humble attitude that welcomes correction. Proverbs 10, 17 says, he, he is in the way of life that keeps instruction, but he that refuses reproof errs. You're, you're off the path. Proverbs 15, 32 
It says, he that refuses instruction despises his own soul, but he that listens to reproof gets understanding. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Christians are supposed to be open to someone pointing out that their behavior is wrong and what they need to change to make their behavior correct. They, that's how we're supposed to be. Someone who is in Christ may not always like having their behavior corrected. They might even wrestle with that correction for a while, but they do not repeatedly protest that they and God are fine, even though they continue to disobey Him when it's pointed out. They don't born-again believers don't continually do that. That person, John says, is a liar. And then he says the truth is not in them. We've seen that phrase before in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, the fact that the truth isn't in them means that everything we know to be true about having a relationship with Jesus does not exist in that person. They have deceived themselves into thinking they're right with God. And so because of that, when you and I are interacting with a believer who's repeatedly being stubborn, rebellious, selfish, or carnal, we cannot say to them, oh, don't worry. I mean, I remember the day you got saved. Everything will be fine. That is not the right response when someone is continually disobeying God and protesting that everything's fine. We can't tell them, oh, okay, yeah, you are good. You, you got saved and in the past. I remember when you said the prayer. Or you've done all sorts of good things. Surely that makes up for what you're doing now. I've gotten in the most trouble when people who have come to me and they're, they say, this is what's going on in my marriage or my life, my walk with the Lord, and... I'll ask them some questions, and then I'll be like, okay, well, I mean, and I'll show some scripture, and I say, the Bible's really clear that the things you're doing right now are disobedient to the Lord, so you need to get right with the Lord. That's, that's why you're, this, you, this is happening. It's why you're experiencing these things in your life. And, and, and you know, what do you tell me? I'm not saved? I, I'm not telling you you're not saved. I'm telling you you need to repent. You need to get right with the Lord. How can you tell me that? I've been in church for 30 years, or I've known the Bible, I've read the Bible longer than you've been alive. You know, I mean, some of the comments you start to hear, I've been a Sunday school teacher. And you, know, you think to yourself, you go, that, that doesn't count for anything. Anything. You could protest all the good things you've done, but none of those things saves us. Now, that doesn't mean I blast that person or tell them you're not saved. I don't know those answers. God only knows the heart, but I do need to call that person to repentance. You need to call that person to repentance. You need to tell them they're not right with God right now, no matter what they've done in the past. And that's the problem. They need to fix that. And when someone who is indeed born again hears those words, it pricks their heart. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of them brings conviction and begins to draw them close to the Lord again. And as a result, <laughs> if they don't repent, they're going to be miserable because they won't have assurance 
of their salvation. They won't have that peace that comes with knowing God's pleased with them. I've heard it said the most miserable person on the earth is a backslidden Christian, and it's true, because they can't even enjoy their sin. If you're truly born again and you're not where you're supposed to be and you know it, you're, the mo- you're miserable because you can't even enjoy the things that you're doing to disobey the Lord. And that's John's point. He wants us to have this gift of, of assurance from God. But God's never going to assure you and me when we're being hard-hearted and prideful or demanding our own way. And neither should anyone else. And so if you're here this morning and you would say your life is characterized by not continuing to obey, then you need to repent. You need to get right with God. You need to change your mind about how you're behaving and you need to confess your sin. You need to bring it to the light and you need to recognize this isn't okay, God, and I don't want to do this anymore. And I make a choice to stop. You need to make a decision to get on the normal path of growth for a Christian, a life that grows in its obedience to God's commands. Now, in contrast to this life of contradiction, a genuine believer might sin or even rebel against God, but their attitude to having that pointed out is very different. Verse 5, but, in other words, in contrast to the attitude in verse 4, but whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected, and hereby, by that means, that the love of God's been perfected in us because we're keeping his word, we know that we are in him. In other words, it's more than just obeying commandments. He says, whosoever keeps his word, and whosoever, again, it's, it, here it's the idea, should keep on obeying his word. Now we've progressed. And for the person who knows the Lord, truly knows the Lord, it's not, a, it's not just about the do's and the don'ts or the rules and the regulations. It includes all of Scripture. It's about treasuring the words of our Savior. It's about receiving those words like a letter from the king who is also our best friend. John says the person that keeps on moving in that direction, that's treasuring God's word more and more, that longs to take it to heart, he says that person in him, verily or in reality, and unlike the person in verse 4 who's a phony, he says this person is in reality or in truth, the love of God has been perfected in them. Now, what does it mean that the love of God is perfected in them? Well, the word perfected there means the love of God has been made more mature or more complete. When someone is genuinely born again, they have an experience of God's love that transforms how they relate to God. I mean, it's, it's true. Like later on in chapter 2, John's going to say, listen, you young believers out there, you know your sins are forgiven. Like, I mean, that may be all you know, but that, that's, that's solid, Right? That love that God has for you, that he forgive all your sins, wash you clean, as we sang, take away all that shame and guilt, condemnation, you're free, you're in Christ. We have an experience of God's love that transforms how we relate to God. That's why Jesus called it being born again. It's like a different life, a whole new life. 
Paul described it in Ephesians chapter 2 from beginning to end. He goes, listen, verses 1 through 3, this is who you were. This is who we all were. The enemy influenced us. Our own flesh influenced us. Our own selfish desires influenced us. And we just went after it like the dog in heat. But God, who is rich in mercy, he is wealthy in mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Because, the reason he's rich in mercy is because of the great love that he has towards us. He reached out to us. He made the first move. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he drew us to his side. And when we put our faith in Christ, he raised us up to sit in heavenly places in Christ in order that from that moment on, he might be showing us his grace and his kindness and his love for all eternity. And then he tells us, God has good things in store for you, good works he's prepared for you to do. That's that normal path of the Christian transformation. From the moment we are born again, God's love begins working inside of us, changing the way we think about him, changing the way we think about sin, changing the way we think about life. And so as we see how good and gracious he is and we see his work in our lives, we begin to love him back. This love of God that's perfected in us that John describes here, it's not just God's love for us, nor is it just our love for God, but it describes both of those things. This mature relationship, this true love relationship between us and the Lord. It is God's love for us and our love for Him, our relationship. And therefore, His love for me and my love for Him become the motivation for not just doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. They become the motivation for hanging on his every word, that his every word matters to me. That kind of relationship cannot be faked, nor can it be replaced by a Bible reading schedule or a Sunday school position, teacher position, or 30 years of good deeds. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, he talked about what he, what what matters. Some of you might be saying, man, Pastor Will, this is a heavy message. It's going to get heavier. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, he utters a statement that, that is chilling. There's no other way to say it. Like You, you can't soften it. You can't, can't dumb it down. He says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Like, just pause there for a second and slap that into the reality of your soul. It is going to happen. There will be people, when they get to heaven, they will say, oh, it's you, Lord, and they're not going to get to go in. When they stand before the Lord, they're going to say, oh, it's you, and they're not going to get to go in. That's going to happen. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but, who is the one that will? He that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. What's God's will? Jesus said, this is the will of him, that you believe on him whom he sent. We have to all come to a place, not where we get religious, not where we we get spiritual, not where we decide to do something better for society or better for the church or better for ourselves. We have to all come to a place, to a point where we recognize, I'm lost 
I have done wickedly and I need to be rescued. I need a savior and I believe that Jesus is that savior that he died for my sins on the cross. That's the will of God, that you come to that confession of faith. And then having come to that confession of faith that you begin to grow in your relationship with him. That's the will of the Father. So not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have cast out demons, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, well, you didn't do enough good works. Is that what it says? We didn't cast out enough demons. You didn't teach enough Sunday school classes. You didn't go to, go to enough church services. You missed it by three. No. In fact, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't dispute any of their claims. Jesus doesn't respond by saying, no, you didn't do any of that. Jesus says, then I will profess to them, I never knew you. This no is a different word. It, it, it's hard to describe. Like, you might say, well, I know so-and-so. And then I might go to them and say, hey, you know, someone said they know you, and they're like, who's that? I could say I know somebody, but that doesn't mean, like, they approve of the relationship. Like, that doesn't mean they're like, yeah, they, you know, they might be like, yeah, I know who they are. <laughs> The knowing here, it refers to a relation, an approving relationship. He's going to say, you knew my name, but I, I never approved of how we related. Never. Never approved of how you tried to relate to me at all. This way of trying to relate to me by doing miracles or good deeds or whatever it was, like that's not what I was looking for. That's, that's not how you come into relationship with me. I will profess unto them, I never knew you never was in relationship with you. So depart from me, you who work iniquity. It's so interesting. Jesus didn't say, you who sinned too many times, or you who transgressed or trespassed too many times. He gets right to the heart. He goes, you might have done also good things out here, but your heart was full of iniquity. Two problems Jesus brings up here with these individuals. Number one, he says, you never had a relationship with me. Number two, all your energy was produced by iniquity. What's iniquity? It's that sin of the heart. It's where in Genesis 6, 5, when God is looking over the earth and he's about to flood it, and he says that he, he saw that every imagination of man's heart was wicked. I, you want to do an interesting test? I'm not a movie watcher, so I mean, I wouldn't be able to do this, but if you like movies or TV shows or stories or books or podcasts, listen to people talk about how to do life, TED Talks, I don't even know what that is, but hear it a lot. <laughs> listen to them and tally up how many times the theme of the movie is trust your heart, believe in yourself, try your best, do what makes you feel good. Tally it up. These are the things you would expect like, like a little kid to come up to you and tell a story with his little magical unicorn guy and say, believe in yourself and you can do anything. And I'd expect that from a child. These are grown adults. If I had a nickel, well, I guess a nickel doesn't go very far these days. If I had a $20 bill, 
So that's what you need to go any distance these days. For every time, I heard someone say when talking about charity or doing good things, you know, and it, it just makes you feel so good. That sounds a lot like selfishness to me. Does that mean if it doesn't make me feel good to help somebody, I stop? Like, what happens when it doesn't feel good? What happens when I'm not getting anything back? Do I stop giving out? This iniquity is bound up in all of our hearts. And this is why an outwardly moral or good person or someone who is even churched does these spiritual type things. Why they still need the cross. Because the motivation for that moral or good behavior is off. It's it's done in rebellion to God because He has certain commands. It's done in my own strength rather than the Lord's strength, or it's done for self-oriented purposes and motivations. And that is just as wicked to God as doing it immoral or wrong things. Because ultimately what iniquity does is it sets myself up as my own God. Now, as an aside, for you single people, particularly you young people, this is why you'll hear me say a lot, don't look for somebody who goes to church. If I ask you the question, oh, what are they like? Don't say, oh, they're a Christian. That always scares me that that's the first thing out of their mouth. Because it's almost like, yeah, there's nothing else I can talk about, but they are a Christian. Don't look for somebody who goes to church or claims to be a Christian or even if they're just a nice person. Look for somebody who loves Jesus more than you do or at least as much as you do. Because loving God is the greatest commandment and everything else will follow from that or crumble from that. So John says when someone loves God and their sin is pointed out, they don't, they don't make excuses or justifications. They don't boast about how they know about God or what they've done for God or how much longer they've followed God than you. They deal with it. Or they're miserable while resisting dealing with it. Because at the end, it's their relationship with Jesus that matters the most. They're hanging on his words and they know they can't do that when they're staying where they are. And so verse four at the end, he says, Hereby know we that we are in him. Again, same idea. This is how we understand by experience that we are actually in him. We grow in our assurance. We gain this assurance that something has been completed, that we are indeed born again, saved, done deal by this attitude toward the words of the Lord. You know, it's interesting, the Gnostics claimed to have special knowledge to know that you were saved. They were the ones who would say, well, you know, have you had this experience yet? Or have you come to this understanding yet? Have you gone through all these courses yet? Do you have a little card that says member of this church yet? Not that I'm opposed to church membership. That's a whole other can of worms. I'm not going to talk about that anymore. But there are some people who put more in stock in the fact, oh, of course I'm going to heaven. Look at what my card says. Deacon so-and-so. Do, 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 do. That may be true, deacon so-and-so, but you've not been born again. So it doesn't matter. So 
they claimed you had to have this special knowledge or achieve this certain level to know you were saved. But John makes it clear that that life of obedience is the correct test, hanging on the words of the Lord. That means a baby believer who's just beginning to learn the truths of God, but who's obeying what they're learning, can have absolute assurance of their salvation. You don't have to achieve some status to go, well, now I know I'm really saved. You know, I've been teaching Sunday school for a few years. You know, I've come to church steadily now. Now I know. No. You can be a baby believer. And as you're just growing in your obedience and whenever you learn something, you say, I want to do that. Well, that's where I want to be. And I'm not a baby believer. So you can have that assurance. And that is not something a person who can only spout their knowledge. That's not something they can possess. Because as Jesus said, claiming to know him isn't the same as having a relationship with him. And John closes his last thought on this test with relationship. He that says he abides in him, verse 6, ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Again, the idea, he that says, the one constantly claiming, the one consistently professing that he abides in Christ he ought himself also so to walk even as he, Jesus, walked. John is making a progression here from verse 3 to verse 6. He starts in verse 3 by saying a believer knows Jesus. Then he moves to explaining that a believer is in Jesus in verse 5, and then he closes by saying that a believer abides in Jesus. The word abide means to make your home with someone, to make your home somewhere to remain with them. It implies friendship, dependence, harmony, communion, closeness. And that, again, is the normal, natural growth process for someone who's been born again. If someone is consistently saying, yeah, that's me, I'm born again, well, then their conduct should match their claim. Their conduct should show someone who's making Jesus their home and they sense that obligation. He that says he abides in him ought himself. The word ought there means to have a strong sense of moral obligation, to feel a sense of debt to someone or gratitude, a a sense that this is how it needs to be. When someone says, Jesus is, I'm making him my home, if they're genuine, they're gonna have that sense of obligation to love Jesus back, to do what he says, to live like he lived to behave like Jesus behaved. You see, just as John made an internal progression from verse three to verse six, he now shows the external progression affected by the internal progression. We know him, we have this relationship and we're hanging on his every word and then we're making him our home. That's the natural progression of Christian growth. And that natural inward progression leads to a natural outward progression. He starts by explaining that someone who has this relationship with Jesus keeps on obeying God's commands. Then he moves on to explaining that someone who's in Jesus, someone who's hanging on his every word, is desiring to just obey whatever Scripture says. And then he closes by saying that someone who makes Jesus their home is going to live like Jesus lived, behave like Jesus behaved. Now, remember, John's already told us in verses 1 and 2 that he's not teaching legalism. He's not teaching that that's how you you get saved by doing, you know, these things. What he's teaching is that someone who is genuinely born again, they have a different mindset toward Jesus and therefore a different mindset toward sin. I love what David Guzik says about this change. 
He says, sin is not eliminated in the believer until the believer comes to glory. But the believer's relationship to sin is changed. A Christian no longer loves sin as he once did. A Christian no longer brags about his sin as he once did. A Christian no longer plans to sin as he once did. A Christian no longer fondly remembers his sin as he once did. A Christian no longer fully enjoys his sin as he once did. And a Christian is no longer comfortable in habitual sin as he once was. If we want to go deeper with Jesus, we need to have that assurance of our salvation. But that will not happen if my conduct is described by continuing in sin instead of continuing in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not a complex idea. Falling into sin is something we all battle, right? But continuing in sin reveals a love problem. It's not a, well, I need to get this right problem. No, it reveals a love problem. It reveals a relationship problem with Jesus. And so if I am continuing in disobedience to God, it can mean only one of two things. Either I've never been born again or I've gotten off that path of making Jesus my home. Either way, repentance is the only cure. That's the only way to fix that. And so, as the team comes up, I ask you this morning, how do you hold up to the moral test? What is your response when someone confronts you about your sin or you read in the Bible about your sin? Is God's word something you long to implement into your life? And is making Jesus your home becoming a greater desire throughout your, your walk with the Lord? Or do you desire to make your home elsewhere? Now, I realize that answering those questions takes some honest conversation with God and with yourself. The goal of this teaching is not for you to go home and beat yourself over the head with a club and go, get it right, Will, get it right. You know, can't you ever get it right? That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. It requires some honest conversation with the Lord and with yourself because we need to be able to properly evaluate our lives, to let the Lord examine us and to be honest with ourselves. Not too hard, but not softy either. Honest. Because if we can answer those questions by saying, well, I don't always get it right, but I generally do continue in obedience, and I do long to make Jesus my home. I want to do what he says because I know he loves me, and I do love him. Well, if that's the case, then stop. Stop doubting your salvation. You know, stop listening to the devil's lies about you not being saved. John wants you to rest in the finished work of Christ. He wants you to rest in God's love for you. He wants to rest in the truth that I am my beloved and he is mine and nothing can separate me from the love of God. He wants us to have that. And so if you say, well, I genuinely struggle, but, but I do want to obey God and I am growing in that, even if sometimes the growth is slow. Well, then move forward and stop letting the enemy beat you up and stop beating yourself up. On the other hand, if you have honest conversation with the Lord and yourself and the answer to those questions is, my heart is hard or my love is cold or my life is generally characterized by disobedience, then you need to ask yourself an honest follow-up question, which is this. 
Have you ever repented of your sin? Have you ever recognized your need from a Savior? Not like just to be saved because life is going bad. But you need to be saved because you sinned against the holy God and deserve his wrath. If you've never come to that place, you've never repented of that, that's how we get saved. And so if you've never done that, then that's an easy fix. Repent and call on the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Bible says you'll be saved. Stop arguing about what you've done in the past or, or how many spiritual things you do in your life or how often you pray or even read your Bible and instead make things right with God. And the Bible says that he'll take you out of darkness and put you into his light. Now, if your answer to the question of my life is kind of characterized by disobedience, but I have repented of my sin and I do trust Christ as my only hope of a Savior, then you need to ask the Lord to show you the idols that you've set up in your heart that are keeping you from loving Him first. You need to ask the Lord to show you what things you're clinging to that are more important than making Jesus your home. And then, there's only one solution for an idol in Scripture. Just get rid of it. Cut it down, burn it down, send it off, do whatever you have to do, melt it down. There's only one solution for an idol. There, God's solution for an idol is never put it away for a while. God's solution for an idol is never, well, let's coexist. Let's worship the Lord, but keep this here, but not rock the boat. The solution is always tear it down, burn it down, cut it down, melt it down, ship it off, get rid of it, destroy it. And so, if you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, you're not experiencing this gift that God wants to give you because your life is characterized by disobedience, you need to ask the Lord, Lord, where's the idol? And then when he points it out, you need to deal with it. Because until you do, you're gonna be waffling back and forth. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, the scripture says. There's no way around it. And God wants you to experience this. So, my encouragement to you is, get rid of the idol. Let's all stand. We'll have a big fire out in the courtyard for cell phones and tablets. And <laughs> the Lord loves you immensely. His heart towards you is good. He's not trying to keep you from good things. The Bible says he'll withhold no good thing from you. His plan for you is good. He's got good works. He's, he wants to show you his kindness and his mercy for all eternity. And he wants you to be able to experience that and embrace it rather than walk around all the time going, I don't even know if God wants to work in my life. But that's what disobedience does. That's why John gives us this test. He wants us to know Jesus like he does. So wherever you're at, don't leave today without fixing that. So Lord, we love you. We're so grateful that you give us this beautiful blessing of assurance that we can know that we know that we know we're yours. And so Lord, for those maybe today who've been struggling with that, but you know, they look at this test and they go, well, no, I'm not perfect, but my life is, I am trying to obey the Lord. I do want to make him my home. Lord, 
Give them that assurance of salvation right now. Help them to grow in that area. Let this be another stone in that, that growth arc of their life so that they can embrace all you have for them instead of letting the enemy beat them up all the time. And then, Lord, for those who either may not be saved this morning, maybe have never repented, or maybe those who are backslidden or just really not obeying you right now, Lord, would you draw them with your bands of loving kindness to your side? It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, Lord. Lord, may no one leave here today without being close to you, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.